Hey guys, this is Faye from Kriogs Over Coffee. I wanted to apologize because I'm not going to be on the next few podcast episodes. Apparently, you have to work as a third-year resident, so I just wasn't able to be there for those interviews. But I highly encourage you to listen to the next few episodes with Nick because we have some really awesome guests that are coming on to teach us about a lot of wonderful topics that are relevant to OBGYN. I also wanted to take the opportunity to talk to you guys about a really cool website that Nick and I enjoy and we've been using to help with the making of our podcast. We have partnered up with the OBG Project to bring you more great content as we go through our journey of making this podcast. The OBG Project has a lot of amazing resources and summaries for guidelines and practice bulletins on their website. They are also launching something called OBG First, which is a subscription that fourth-year residents can get absolutely free for one year. With this subscription, you get your very own library where you can add to it your favorite guidelines and summaries that they have. And every day, they will also send to your phone or email the very latest summaries as well as the latest articles from important journals. Nick and I have actually both been using this uh, subscription and it has been really, really great in helping us prepare to be chiefs for next year because who would have thought it's already April and uh, we're going to be fourth years in about three months. So we're going to include the link for OBG First and the OBG Project on our website. You can go on, sign up. It's absolutely free if you're a fourth-year resident. You just need to fill out a form that says your name, your email address, as well as your program so that they can verify that you are a fourth-year resident. And the absolute last announcement of today, I'd like to give a shout-out to Jonathan Angel, who just became a $10 a month subscriber on our Patreon If you want to get a shout out from us or other cool swag from us, you can also become a patron on our Patreon. You can sign up for $5, $10, or really as much as you want to donate every single month. Thank you again for supporting this podcast and making it possible. Okay, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. Faye is not with us here tonight because she got stuck working, but okay, we're going to fly solo. Welcome back to Kriogs Over Coffee. So tonight we have with us Dr. Nathan Riley. Dr. Riley is a practicing obstetrician, but also a fellow now in hospice and palliative care medicine at the University of California, San Diego. Dr. Riley, welcome to the podcast. So Nathan, I guess to start, you know, Tell me how you got involved with hospice and palliative care medicine. I feel like this is not a common pathway for OBGYNs. It's it's definitely not. I'm I'm reminded of the Arrested Development when when Tobias stands up and is like, "There are dozens of us." Uh, (laughs) That's sort of where I found myself. There's there's there are just a handful. Um, But I guess to answer your question, the reason that I went into this was that. In my training in this fellowship year, you know, you become a, a relative expert in symptom management and communication with family, medical decision making. Um, there's a lot of ethics that kind of rolls into that. And these are all things that I thought we could do better in OBGYN. So I figured, why not go and get some additional training to make myself an even better OB? Absolutely. No, I think that that's a great thing. And thank you again for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. So today we're going to talk about palliative care, known as learning objectives number one. We'll talk about what exactly palliative care is, 
and what palliative care is appropriate for. Number two, we're going to talk about kind of certain pain management strategies. And we'll get into the weeds a little bit with those, but we'll talk in general terms. And really, finally, to leave everybody with some tips for home, end with a discussion about common procedures and what common pain management strategies there might be. Sound good, Nathan? Sounds good to me. All right. So I guess to start off, you know, what does an OBGYN need to know about palliative care? Well, so in my answering that question, it was sort of the question I had to kind of come around to myself um, when, you know, I've had family members that have gotten critically ill and they've gone through this process where they get sicker and sicker and then ultimately there's no more treatment. Hospice is then introduced. Those, those experiences kind of, they kind of stick with you. Um, but the, as an OBGYN, we don't really have much interface, right? Because we're used to delivering a lot of, of really, a really positive care, especially in the OB world, which is what I naturally kind of am drawn to. But in your training, you see lots of ovarian cancer, peritoneal cancer, et cetera, um, mm-hmm. cervical cancer, where pain or nausea or side effects related to chemotherapy itself, um, they're, they're really kind of the, the, the crux of many patients' issues. So in my training, despite us learning everything in OBGYN, the one area that maybe we, we need to shore up a little bit is symptom management. And so palliative care kind of does that. Um, and in addition, I think that the, the sort of risks, benefits, goals of care discussions that we do in palliative care are also, I think, very in line with what we in, in OBGYN try to provide to our patients. So I, I guess to start, the World Health Organization has a definition, which I think is really good uh, because it also kind of gets into some of the other psychosocial stuff that we do in palliative care. So palliative care defined by who? It improves the quality of life of patients and their families facing the problem associated with life-threatening illness through the prevention and relief of suffering by means of early identification and impeccable assessment and treatment of pain and other problems, physical, psychosocial, and spiritual. So I think that kind of sums it up. <laughs> yeah, I got to say, hearing that definition, I kind of got a little bit of goosebumps there. Really, uh, It really encompasses a lot. And a powerful stuff, yeah. Yeah, and I guess one of the things that strikes me about that and maybe is a you know a learning point for our listeners too is you know that really says that palliative care is not just uh somebody is dying let's get them involved it sounds like we need to get palliative care involved a lot earlier. Yeah, absolutely. So the the I think traditional model or what many families sort of tell me when I when I start talking about palliative care is that they say, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, we're not ready for that." And this might be a patient who has stage three or four or recurrent cancer, and they're saying, well, we're not ready for that. Or even the, the physician caring for this patient, whether it's a hematologist-oncologist or GYN-oncologist, whatever, pulmonologist, cardiologist, they said, no, they're not ready for palliative care. And I guess the, the, the sort of traditional, I don't know, the, there's a little bit of stigma around it because people think that once you get palliative care involved, that means that I'm dying and, and we're ready to ship you off to some magical place in the clouds called hospice. But the reality is that when a patient is diagnosed with a complex medical illness, getting palliative care early is helpful because, because we know that that patient's going to need a lot of this psychosocial support family support, bereavement support later in the event that they do eventually pass away from this illness. And while they're getting treatment, sometimes you can optimize their treatment by getting those symptoms under control. 
So the way that I view it is as soon as you receive that diagnosis of cancer or COPD or whatever, palliative care should be part of your care package. Like this is kind of requisite for you getting the best care possible. Is there anything that palliative care like doesn't do really, or maybe misconceptions about palliative care? So the approach that palliative care takes, we, we have a multidisciplinary team framework. So the things that, that you might get in that are a chaplain, a social worker, nurse practitioner, maybe multiple physicians. And, you know, we go through all those things that we talked about, the things that we don't do and the things that I think a lot of our consulting teams think we do is that we don't get the DNR, so to speak. I'm using air quotes over here because, you know, the team's like, oh, you know, this patient's just crumping. She's circling the drain. Can you just go in and get the DNR? That's really not what palliative care does because we don't tell people what to do. Um, what we do instead is we try to elicit what is important to this to this patient or to the medical decision makers in, in, in the family. And we try to then help them navigate this complex medical system, uh, which is confusing to me and you, let alone a patient's family member who has no experience within an ICU setting. We also don't withdraw care. We don't hasten death. We don't do any of those things. When we get involved, we try to add a, an additional layer of support in order to optimize the patient's comfort. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we are, are pushing them towards you know, pushing them out the door, so to speak. See, and I guess, you know, one other thing and not to put you on the spot here or anything, but I think as OBGYNs, we have a problem with one particular aspect of what you just mentioned, which is that goals of care code conversation. Are there any quick tips that you have for residents in terms of how to bring that up or how to do that gracefully? Yeah, I, you know, even when you're in the OB side, I think people often think of cancer when they think of palliative care. And granted, probably 50% of the patients that we, that we are going to see either have cancer or end-stage renal disease, end-stage heart disease, they're decompensated, heart failure, whatever. But even on the labor and delivery unit, when a person says, I don't want blank, it's easy to just say something like, oh, it sounds like blank you know, gives you anxiety or, or, or makes you, gives you some stress or sounds like you're a little bit afraid of X, Y, or Z. You know, you can, you're, you're a person when this person's telling you, I don't know, I'm not so uncomfortable or I'm, I'm a little uncomfortable with that. It's very easy to reflectively say, oh, wow, tell me more about that. Or tell me what, what is so scary about the epidural or, or gosh, you, you know, you, you sound like you're really worried about being in pain and labor. Tell me a little bit more about that. And they might tell you, oh yeah, my, sister-in-law was just just had a baby and said she just had the worst pain of her life or they took her for an emergency c-section and i'm so anxious about that and when you start to allay someone's fears and, and assuage some of their their hesitations about this fearful thing that they're going into if you can address those anxieties sometimes pain becomes less of the issue but pain is we know is exacerbated by anxiety and sleeplessness and all those other stressors that we have so I always tell people, just try to get to know the person and then ask more questions instead of doing more talking. And that's really what a goals of care discussion is. There's, of course, nuances, and we do a, a lot of training in this communication piece. But I'd say that that's the, the pearl that you can take away from this. No, that's great. And I guess now switching gears and leading into that, talking about pain management. Now, what types of pain are there? How should we set up a framework for thinking about pain management for our patients? Well, I think um, it's a really good question. And I think that, you know, I, I will take one step back and I will 
you know, I, I, I want everybody to know who's listening that, that pain in and of itself is an entire discipline. So palliative care physicians are certainly not experts in pain management, but we do do a lot of thinking about pain management. And so pain can be the physical pain that we experience from either burns or stabs or neuropathy or labor or whatever, but it can also be spiritual in nature. It can be existential in nature. That's sort of why me, what's going to happen to me. That actually leads to a lot of pain. And we're talking about that emotional pain on that side. But when we're, when, when, when you ask that question and when I hear that question, I sort of assume that we're talking about physical pain because most of the patients that, that need palliative care, um, are going to have multiple types of pain. The, the most pressing one is going to be that physical pain. So when I think about pain, I think I want to know more. Remember the PQRST, does it radiate? What's the quality and all that stuff? I'm thinking about that stuff. So I want to know, is this intermittent pain or is it constant? Is it worse when you walk? Is it improved when you lay down? Is it acute or has this been a chronic pain pattern? Um, And then most importantly, this kind of gets into the prescription methods that we have. Nociceptive, meaning that sort of normal pain, I like to call it for patients, versus neuropathic, which is that burning, radiating, shooting pain, um, which is related to, you know, the nerve pain. So normal pain versus nerve pain. I think that's actually one of the most important questions that we don't always address. Great. So yeah, I guess now let's say that we've clarified our pain and we think, you know, this is chronic pain, say due to unremitting cancer. And we don't think that it's necessarily neuropathic. We think that, you know, the thing to do here is to try and get the patient up on some sort of opioid. I think that's really what a lot of us have experienced in jumping to, you know, you get them started on morphine or dilaudid or what have you. In terms of, I guess, putting that together, like what, what is your strategy in terms of addressing pain and how do you build up? How do you go forward? What are, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you're asking all the right questions and keep in mind that, you know, this is a whole year of training that we do in this. And then there's years and years in practice to get better. There's a lot of like art, I guess, to the, to the management of pain, to that discipline, um, as opposed to just the science. But there's a couple principles I'm going to try to leave you with. The first one I want to refer you to is the who analgesic ladder, which is basically like, a, you know, again, we talked a little bit about this, but don't bring a gun to a knife fight. You know, if this is inflammatory pain after, you know, you ran a long race, you're not going to give somebody belotted, right? You want to give them a little bit of ibuprofen (laughs) or Tylenol, like, oh, mom has a headache here, mom, take some of this fentanyl. Like it doesn't really work like that. But in the media and whatnot, we've, we've kind of developed this impression that, oh, a person has pain, they come into the ED, bam, give them some belotted. And you know, that's really not a good practice. Um, there's a lot of better ways um, to, to manage pain. So the, the who analgesic ladder kind of takes that into account. So that at the first level, you should be thinking, what can I do that's not opioid related to help their pain? And those are things like acetaminophen, the NSAIDs, aspirin, um, all those really old drugs that are really cheap over the counter are a great are great at managing pain. Now, if it's inflammatory, of course, the NSAIDs are really great. Um, but you can also consider you know, the, the hot, cold compression, those types of things, um, heating pads, cold compresses, getting sleep, 
um, and again, dressing those other sources of pain. If somebody's really, really anxious and they're telling you're in pain, they, they telling you that they're in pain, maybe they're reporting pain that's really kind of being fed by some sort of emotional something going on for them. Mm. And so that can be complicated, but it's at least important to think about it. Above that, you get your your weak opioids, as we call them, and that's like your oxycodone, codeine, tramadol. And then above that is the stronger ones. You get your Dilaudids, you get your um, your fentanyl. And then there's some others that sort of fall somewhere in that ladder, like methadone and tramadol. Um, you can, by the way, Google the who analgesic ladder and, and you'll find variations of it. But the, the bottom line is that you, you want to only ramp it up to the more potent opioids as you, as you sort of fail those, those lower rungs of the ladder. Absolutely. We'll have the, uh, WHO analgesic ladder on our website, just so our listeners have easy access to that. Um, it is a nice framework to to put that together and to know how to step up your yeah, how to step up your interventions. Yeah. And I guess kind of talking a little bit more about chronic pain, you know, other than kind of obtaining consultation, do you have any kind of pearls for strategies in terms of either initiation of medications or titrating medicines, especially for like acute on chronic type of situation. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I won't dig too deep into this because this is really pharmacology 102. This is kind of goes beyond what we what we normally I think learn in our in our medical residency. But there's a couple principles of prescribing any medication and opioids are, are no exception. We especially have to be diligent in how we prescribe these medicines because as you know people become very tolerant very easily to them. And there's some pretty serious consequences of giving somebody too much or letting these pills get into the wrong hands of somebody who wants to use mm-hmm. them for different reasons. So a couple of the principles that I always like to teach my residents within internal medicine, et cetera, um, are um, a couple of pharmacolo- pharmacology terms. First, we've talked about potency, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. And then two others, which are really on the really directly related to the metabolism of these drugs, CMAX and Half-life. So the Cmax is essentially the amount of time that it takes for a medication to go from administration to peak effect. So this really is dependent more on the route of administration as opposed to the opioid itself. So the Cmax, for example, of an IV medication, it, it's anywhere from six to ten minutes. If you administer a medication subcutaneously or intramuscular, it can be in the range of 20 to 35, 40 minutes. Um, If you're going to give something orally, you have to wait at least 45 to 60 minutes to see the effect. And so, and to see the max effect, meaning if you've given, if you've taken Tylenol um, at home and you've waited 20 minutes and you're like, oh, I'm not getting any help here. And you take another one like, oh, I'm still not getting any help. By the time you hit the 60 minute mark, you've already taken three doses and you haven't even seen the max effect of the first dose. So those principles are important. The other principle, half-life, is, ex- is extremely important because when you give a medication, you don't want to give them too close together, right? Because, because then mm-hmm. you start stacking up and before you know it, with the opioids, especially a person's no longer breathing and you're giving them naloxone to try to, to re- try to recover them. Um, so in the, in general oral or any opioid, which is in in these half-lives are generally unrelated to the, to the route of administration, you can expect a two to four hour half-life. I actually find the two to three hour range is important. And if a person's on chronic pain medication, the reason we prescribe these every four hours, every six hours is related to the half-life. 
Um, just as a side note, the, the potency is, is unrelated to these things. And in order to reach a steady state in the serum, meaning your body's metabolizing and spitting it out at the same rate it's going in, and so you have a steady state um, in the blood, it's four to five half-lives. Meaning if you're giving, if the half-life is, is, let's say, four hours, you have to be giving it for four to five iterations of that on the clock before they're, they're at a steady state. And so when you're talking about chronic pain management or cancer pain management, you need to make sure that you're taking that into account. So, um, so these are all principles. Of course, of, of course we, you know, we could, we could get into the weeds, I think pretty, pretty easily here. Um, but I think that your thoughts on using these medications somewhat, um, being very diligent in your, in your prescription, especially for patients with chronic pain, um, can be, is, is just very important for us as physicians. Oh, yeah, and that was a great dive back into pharmacology. Something I'm sure that a lot of us haven't really thought about. <laughs> like, since what am I ever going to need this for? <laughs> right, um, yeah, well, now we know. <laughs> I guess Nathan, let's finish up and talk about a couple of, I guess, more common scenarios that OBGYN residents may find themselves in, um, particularly on the obstetric side. I guess, or we can even stay in GYN to start. But I wanted to think about a couple of different scenarios where we're commonly prescribing pain medicines what type of pain medicines may be appropriate. And as you mentioned earlier, are some medicines better than others? Kind of to start with obstetrics, let's talk about vaginal birth. I don't know if there are still a lot of people that are prescribing opioids after vaginal birth, or maybe it kind of depends on degree of laceration or other types of factors, mm -hmm. what people do in their personal practice. What is actually evidence-based? That's a really good question. Um, I'll just tell you sort of what my practice is, and then we can maybe talk about a couple of the studies. I know that you know you and I have exchanged notes a little bit on this, and you know, unfortunately, there's there's not going to be a hundred percent perfect data on any of these things um, because not too many people are doing randomized controlled trials in actually in the whole OB world, let alone specifically to answer this this question. But there's been enough that I think we have pretty good a pretty good idea. So when I have a patient who undergoes vaginal birth and, and just, I know you said this in the beginning, but I'm still doing obstetrics and some, you know, emergency GYN stuff in a hospital in Encinitas, at Scripps Encinitas, um, while I'm in fellowship. So I'm still getting practice with this and I've actually been able to optimize my practice since having this fellowship training. But what I do is I do all of that level one on the who ladder stuff, the ice packs, you know, the aerosolized benzocaine, the menthol, um, warm packs to the abdomen for the for the crampy pain. Sitz baths are great for soothing the perineal areas, um, the perirectal areas. And then what I generally do is I schedule ibuprofen. As long as they don't have any major contraindications, I'll schedule them 600Q6 or 800Q8, depending on the patient. Um, and then I'll allow them to have acetaminophen, 500 to 650 every four to six hours as needed. If any, and this is like, this is sort of like my advice to the junior residents. If anybody needs an opioid, like they're not well enough controlled through ibuprofen and acetaminophen, those are the patients you need to go see for an exam. Do they have a big hematoma forming in the vagina? Do they have, were they a, a you know, a patient who had, um, maybe had a history of myomectomy and now they had like a rupture and they've still got blood in the belly. Like mm. what the heck is going on that they need a, an opioid to control their pain? There's going to be some patients that maybe need them, but again, I feel like you just need to be a little bit prudent in how you assess them before you just answer the, the, the nurse's call in the middle of the night and just throw some narco at them, right? Yeah. So, so looking at the, the literature, Cochrane did a review, and they found that ibuprofen is better than placebo for post-vaginal delivery pain. Um, but then, of course, they don't have enough 
data to really compare equivalency between NSAIDs or, or, or uh, equivalency or superiority between NSAIDs and opioids um, or opioids even to placebo for vaginal delivery. Because like you said, fortunately, not too many people are prescribing these things. Um, hmm. So they, they, they did, there was a 2017 Green Journal article that, that said that there was still enough opioids being dispensed for vaginal births that we need to at least look at this. And so since that time, fortunately, I think that prescriptions had uh, have sort of been on the decline. But at that time, they looked at 720 vaginal births and the median opioid tablets dispensed was 40. The median consumed was 20 for a vaginal delivery, wow. um, which is more than wow. I would expect, right? So... Yeah, it really is. Yeah, and so you know, not too, not all of the pills are being taken, but that means that there's a whole bunch of opioids just sitting around uh, for anybody to take, you know, or or for them to be diverted to some other place, which is what we certainly don't want to be happening. Um, and then there was another study that it was a large retrospective cohort that looked at it, over a million women, I believe it was, who who simply had a vaginal birth, no postpartum tubules, nothing like that. And they found that 20, 20% were prescribed an opioid within one week of discharge. And um, six weeks, 8.5 of these, of these women, 8.5% of these women had filled a second opioid prescription. So I think that this is probably not so much related to women seeking out opioids or any of those other things that we sort of presume, right? That patients need pain. It's the sixth vital sign, this and that, and we want them to be pain-free. I think it's it's more related to us as OBGYNs preparing people to have a little bit of pain after they have either a delivery or a procedure. If you promise somebody, we will give you something to get your to take your pain away, then they're going to be expecting a pain-free recovery. And we all know that this is a huge event for a woman in her life. And most people are going to have pain or discomfort for a little while afterwards. And part of our prenatal counseling should be to sort of prepare them for that. And I think that that once we can do a better job of that, we would see a reflection in people being more satisfied with even less pain management after the fact. Um, and I do also realize that there's irony in two men here talking about pain related to vaginal delivery after uh, uh, pain related to, to vaginal delivery, you know, in the, in the postpartum period. But, uh, but I do know that we don't do a great job of preparing people for that inevitability that they might have a little bit of discomfort afterwards. Yeah, and I guess you know even one thing that that kind of lead into our next topic is about C sections. I mean, we don't prepare people for pain after vaginal birth. I feel like, and we don't prepare people for the possibility of C section very well, let alone the right. pain potentially after right. C section. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so what do you do for these patients? Yeah. So for the C section patients, I take a slightly different strategy. Um, I know that in the immediate period of their epidural, their spinal anesthesia wearing off, they're probably going to have pretty bad pain. And many of these patients have never had abdominal surgery before. So again, I, I think you're, you're spot on. Preparing them for the likelihood of C-section is important. Preparing them for the likelihood of needing pain medication afterwards and having pain despite that pain medication is equally important. So what I do for my patients is, I, you know, where I train, they, they gave a lot of Duramorph, which is that sort of long-acting morphine that goes into the spinal anesthetic. And that will decrease, you know, their, their pain for the roughly, I don't know, 14 to 18 hours after, after the procedure. Um, what I do is I, I immediately enact the ERAS protocol, even though they're still getting analgesia from the Duramorph. And I'll, I'll let them start taking Norco if they need it within, I don't know, 12 hours or so afterwards. 
Um, in the meantime, I'll have them on Ketorolac, 30 milligrams IV Q6, and then I'll transition them to oral ibuprofen thereafter. So, so they're so we're getting them up, we're moving them, we're feeding them, we're letting them take ibuprofen or the the toradol, um, and then we're going to transition them to oral medications as soon after, and we'll start our Norco around that time. The reason I choose Norco is Norco is about um, well, Norco is a little bit more port, more potent than uh, you know than our standard oral morphine, but it's it's not nearly as strong as something like Dilaudid. So I don't want them to be zonked out. I don't want the, them to have too much going to their breast milk. And I want them to be able to enjoy the postpartum period that, you know, the, where they're bonding with baby and whatnot. So I'll do that. And then in addition, because we know that these women are at a higher rate of, of just post-op ileus, I'll start them on Senecot and I'll give them one to two tablets twice daily. I avoid Colase because Colase actually can make the, make it even worse. And we know through multiple oh, multiple wow. studies that it doesn't help with either opioid-induced um, constipation or in, in post-op ileus. So that's kind of like my general strategy. And it sounds like a lot, but really it's it's just something I do every time. And I've had really, really good results with it. Oh, fabulous. And I guess one thing as well, these enhanced recovery after surgery protocols or ERAS protocols, I've been hearing more and more about um, local anesthetics at the time of C-section or other types of surgeries. Another thing that I've heard more recently is like a tap blocker, transverses abdominis, plane block. You know about those things? Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know too many institutions that are doing this routinely uh, immediately after C-section. I think for patients that might have a really hard time with pain management afterwards, like let's say that they have an opioid tolerance for some other medical indication or something like that, I think a tap lock's a really good, a really good idea. Um, for those of you who don't know, I didn't really know this until I, I actually started to see people doing it after our our our, G, our, our gynonc vertical incisions. The, the big fan and seal incisions in the operating room for big fibroid uteruses. Um, what they what they do is while the patient's still under anesthesia, they'll 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 do this procedure under ultrasound guidance. And the idea here is to block all those peripheral nerves that are supplying the pain signal from the anterior abdominal wall. So all those pain nerves are actually blocked for up to I think it's 24 hours or, or so. I mean, they get some pretty good relief from that. And again, the the whole idea here is that while that patient is going through that acute phase of recovery. They're not going to need as many opioid requirements immediately, uh, 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 as many opioids, excuse me, um, in the immediate post-op period. So, um, so for C-section, I think that's a really, I think that's a good tool. Um, I think that more easily, and I think more, uh, it's it's more available just to do an intraperitoneal infusion or to do a little wound infiltration, um, and you can do that really easily if you're going to pop a whole bunch of lidocaine into the abdominal cavity, just 20 cc's of 2% lidocaine, just flush it in there. Um, you can also use 0.25% bupivacaine, also known as a marcaine. You can use, with, use it with or without epi. Just put that right into the peritoneal cavity. Otherwise, you can use either of those formulas, whatever you have available. I think bupivacaine is probably the most common um, that I use for this, but you can just infiltrate the wound after you've sutured it up. Just push a whole, you know, a whole bunch of that 20 cc's or so, 30 cc's into the wound. And that'll actually provide them pretty good relief. That'll get them up and out of bed and allow you to do those other things in the ERAS protocol. Any other considerations for GYN surgeries, abdominal surgery or anything? Yeah. So if you, we'll, we'll try to, we'll try to pop up the, the ERAS protocol here, but a lot of these things, I think the anesthesia department sort of takes over and we sort of wonder like, why are we suddenly giving IV Tylenol, Ofremev to patients pre-op? Well, again, the whole idea here is to get people up and moving and get them back to their to their preoperative baseline prior uh, to, to where they were prior um, to your surgery. And so, 
so if you if you if you Google the ERS protocol, you'll find that um, preoperatively giving NSAIDs, IV Tylenol, um, gabapentin is a really is a really big one. That's an old drug that we know works really well for that neuropathic pain. You can give all of those things preoperatively. Then intraoperatively, there's some other things you know that you can do. But then again, post-op. I think that the wound infiltration, the, the intraperitoneal infusions, those all work really, really well. And again, getting them up out of bed, keeping them from getting really, really bad constipation. The worst pain some of these patients have is the, is the ileus pain, the gas pockets that form and just crawl, creep around in the belly. And we're like just pumping them up with opioids more and more. Give them a PCA, give them more, give them a big bolus. And we're just making that constipation worse. So anytime a patient's having bad pain, you want to just think about what is the cause of their pain and what are we actually trying to do for them. Um, and, and oftentimes, you know, it could just be constipation related. Um, so, so those are the things I even do for my, for my abdominal surgery patients. Fabulous. Well, Nathan, thanks again. Any last tips or thoughts for our listeners? No, I mean, I think that we could probably t do a whole, a whole separate discussion on constipation and nausea and all those things. We could save that for another time, but I feel like that's another big area that I didn't get great training in as an OBGYN. Um, but I think that if you can get good with pain management and really not being lost in the trees and just keeping the forest in view, I think that you're going to become a much better OBGYN. Fabulous. Well, thanks again, Nathan. I'm going to take it here to just summarize really quickly our episode today. So we started off talking about palliative care and how palliative care's definition, according to the WHO, improves quality of life of patients and their families, patients and their families facing the problems associated with life-threatening illness. And palliative care isn't just they're about to die, get somebody else to deal with the problem. It really is something that get palliative care involved early to help with symptom management, to get patients familiar with the role of palliative care. It's not just hospice. It's not just to get a DNR. Um, there's a lot of psychosocial support that also goes into this. We then talked about analgesia in general, and we talked particularly about different types of analgesics using the WHO analgesic ladder, which we'll post on our website as a guide to how to step up your interventions. Um, we also talked a little bit of pharmacology as well, and we'll have a little guide on the website for that. Finally, we talked about common procedures in obstetrics and gynecology, in particular vaginal birth, C-section, and abdominal surgery. With vaginal birth, remember that before prescribing an opioid, you should really go see that patient. The C-sections and abdominal surgery, ERAS protocols are all the rage right now. Schedule your Tylenol and your um, NSAIDs. Use local anesthetics. You can use other adjunctive medications such as gabapentin for neuropathic pain, and then use your narcotic pain medicines as needed. Um, get your patients up and moving. Work with your anesthesia department. There are lots of things that can get your patients to recover well from surgery without the slowdown of narcotics. Um, Nathan, once again, thank you very much. You're welcome, Nick. Thank you. And if you haven't heard already, Nathan also runs a podcast, the OB Gyno Wino podcast. We'll post a link on our website, but Nathan pairs a practice bullets in her committee opinion alongside a nice bottle of wine. It's really fun to listen to. So check it out. Thanks, Nick. I appreciate that. All right. So once again, this is Nick and this has been Creogs Over Coffee. If you enjoy our podcast, go ahead and go on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or any of your other podcatchers and give us a five-star rating and review. 
Find us online at www.creogsovercoffee.com where we've got some great resources or you can reach out to us. You can find us also on Facebook at Creogs Over Coffee, on Twitter at Creogs Over Coffee 1, or you can support us on Patreon for some cool swag or a shout out on the show, www.patreon.com slash Creogs Over Coffee. Have a suggestion for the show or picked up a mistake that we made in our previous podcast, go ahead and send us an email at creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. 